gentlemen of the jury. Come on, let's get comfortable. For I could ask for no more jurisprudence assemblage than this astute group. Is it not with the utmost falseness that this building is known as the Hall of Justice? That's right, Perry. I have here a document known technically as a habeas corpus. You know the meaning of that word? The ancient Romans from whom it sprang knew its significance. But does our district attorney? I am sustaining the objection. Move to strike. Mr. Matlock, I'm warning you. I have a right to ask the question. The minute I put on that robe, I felt uncomfortable. I'm not a judge. I'm an advocate. I like taking sides. A judge can't do that. Not if she wants to be fair to her defendants. I feel I was born to be a defense attorney. Is this a frivolous application? Uh, only if it is frivolous to allow the innocent their freedom, my lord. Mr. Rumpel, when you use the word innocent, I assume you're referring to your client. I'm referring, my lord, to all of us. We are all innocent until proved guilty by a jury of our peers. Or has the golden thread of British justice uh, become a little tarnished? Murder is usually very simple. It's the getting away with it that's complicated and tricky. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. It's 2001. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. We've got some exciting news in This Week in Science. Natural processes and music are tied together intimately. And this is actually a notion that's been around for um, thousands of years, actually, ever since Pythagoreas. He used uh, the spheres. I know, music spheres. And, and in modern day, we are still creating these natural kind of compositions based on data that we are able to harvest from our universe. So the Chandra X-ray facility has released a new album that is completely generated by information gathered by um, different space observatory platforms, such as Hubble Space Telescope, the Spitzer Imaging Observatory, and the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And what they're doing is taking these data sets and through the process of sonification, creating these incredible scores of music based on these sets of data. It is absolutely beautiful, but what we have to keep in mind is all of the sounds that are created from these are pre-programmed to values that would correspond with uh, what they're inputting. So for instance- Which is light value. Yes, well, you're getting light value through X-ray bandwidth, and then um, through Hubble, it's gonna be more of our visual band. Mm -hmm. And then through Spitzer, uh, it goes a little more into the infrared. So you've got kind of like a triangulation of data mm -hmm. working with pre-programmed sounds to organize into like an orchestral score. And it is absolutely phenomenal. The thing that I was really blown away by 
was this one particular sample that they recorded and when played back is so eerily similar to the monolith scenes on Earth, on the moon, and at Jupiter. That kind of eerie, ephemeral, vocalized uh, cacophony of sound that, that completes this arc of rising and rising and rising and it, it feels like it's transporting you as you're listening to it. Now, this galaxy with a, a black hole controlling the center of it creates something that is mirror-like to this. sound like Ligeti. It sounds shockingly like Ligeti, specifically atmospheres, but there are four Ligeti pieces in 2001. We got the Overture, you got the Requiem for Soprano, Mezzo-Soprano, two mixed choirs and orchestra during the first monolith appearance, TMA Zero on Earth, and then you got Lux Eterna, which shows up in the Jupiter. I was surprised that they didn't have it on the lunar mission. Yeah, then you have atmospheres at the intermission, and that intermission is powerful though is this life imitating art is this art imitating life is this a a feedback loop or is this the ultimate predictive soundtrack to the universe that was what i was thinking because the similarities and the dissonance of it and the starkness of it i was kind of wondering if maybe they had heard something about sonification even prior to this and Mm -hmm. experimentally maybe just yeah used certain images or sets of data to try to reproduce that's interesting because we know that chris john was the one who heard Ligeti on a radio station and and god bless that radio station whatever it is i want to know what's the radio station that's playing Ligeti in the middle of the afternoon oh man the, probably a wine drunk you I know i mean this is pulling up my app right now new favorite station thank you very much <laughs> The real goal of this was to bring these uh, scientific data sets to people that may not have full visual ability, maybe visually impaired or completely blind. This creates a way to interact with data that should be accessible by everyone. Um, That's one of the altruistic goals of NASA is to make their findings truly free for everyone even if you're not able to get it through like a sensory organ they they will find a way to get it to you and one of the really beautiful things was there was a scientist that was deeply involved with the mission for a long time and when she heard one of the songs she recognized it because she is so familiar with the data sets that the oscillations and like the tonal dissonance of it evoked 
Wow. <laughs> you know, isn't that crazy? Wow. Kind of evoked um, her memories of working with that object. But I mean, if you spend years and years and years looking at these numbers and mm -hmm. these sets, it probably eventually creates a pattern that you're very yes. familiar with. And uh, I just thought that was a really beautiful moment for someone that's just is very intimate with that information and, and was able to recognize it to a point that it kind of took them aback. And the sign of the fusion of, of what's behind, of, of what's between the senses of the things that we can translate in between. And I think ways. that really parallels, again, the whole uh, kind of zeitgeist that, you know, music is a natural part of life. You know, we we see it in different animals, not not in like our uh, rhythmic and um, humanistic. You know, we, we can look at frogs, we can look at cicadas, we can look at birds um, probably one of the the better examples but still it's it's rhythmic it's sound waves that serve a purpose but also have like this beautiful pattern to them and um, why wouldn't these data sets not have that it's almost like um seeing the fractal pattern Mendelbrot. Yeah, Mendelbrot. visualizing it how is that any different from the way we picture things when we're reading we read a novel we're completely visualizing everything you know any modern writer has probably read Stephen King's writing on writing which is more self-reflexive than that last sentence even <laughs> about how much the process has to do with boiling the words down to their distillate meanings at the simplest primal form that you get a hard impact symbol or visual image out of it. And we're getting that as out of words. And then our mind is processing it. Just like when we're reading sheet music and we're sight reading or we're getting ready to, to do a jury or, a, or a, an audition or a chair placement or something. Then we're, you know, we're, we're trying to get a couple minutes before we try playing it for the first time. We're imagining what it sounds like in our mind. Again, why not? You know, just like Braille, we're, we're feeling those symbols. If we're blind, we have a depiction of what those symbols mean that's just as visual as we would if we were looking at words on a page. So why shouldn't those synthesize in the mind of somebody who knows both? Uh, another thing that was brought up that was very interesting was the fact that opera, usually sung in, you know, Italian, mm -hmm. or not a necessarily universal language of some sort. and it evokes a feeling even if you don't understand mm -hmm. the words and the words aren't even necessarily they're, they're sung in a way to create symphony and not so much to create literary You're doing harmony and emotion so th this is almost like that same transference of you may not understand what they're singing in words but you can feel the emotion and that emotion is translated through the articulation of their vocal patterns. If, if a clown is crying, singing E Pagliaccia, you don't have to know that he's singing Laugh Clown Laugh, because you can already see that he's a crying clown. You don't. You can, you can catch <laughs> the irony without having to literally understand the words. It's very beautiful. This is available on Bandcamp, right? Correct. So, and what we're talking about here real quick is interpreting, not translating, but interpreting visuals into audio. And 
maybe to take it down to like a it's actually the numeric representations of these data mm. so these images and i mean that i guess that's but you could say the same thing about you I know mean, a digital image is mm-hmm. zeros and ones right you know, whatever that that could be run through the process or a 440 on a tuner yeah um, but you know they're using three sets of data it's going through infrared regular field and x-ray and then those values are assigned different parts in the orchestra mm-hmm. they're the players so to speak and as those sets sweep through the image it starts to create those patterns and rhythms and symphonic breaks like we hear in that sample yeah there's something about if we as human beings are hearing frequencies in a certain way and translating them in our ears in the pitches not only the way that we've divided them but also through various degrees of however many cents off you can d- discern a different pitch i.e what harry parch was doing in the 30s with subdividing pitches a little mm. bit and creating his own scales we what you would have to conclude is that we have a limited but a very focused range of hearing of what we can interpret just like we do with our sight yes so just like a fly can see a myriad of things that we can not see a bird or a dog or a cat can hear a myriad of things that we cannot hear so you would have to assume you know what does music sound like to dogs you yeah, know cacophony what, yeah sure. doesn't make any sense or does it because I know they've determined that certain cats do like music, hmm. and I know that my cat does. Supposedly, plants are receptive to music too, and will change their growth patterns. But it just makes me wonder what they're, what part of the music are they interpreting? You know, are they able to hear? Uh, mm-hmm. Air quotes. Totally. <laughs> Interpret, you know, those vibrations. I had heard that they enjoy more aggressive rock mm. music, but. Maybe it's just because they can't hear orchestral music. But who am I to doubt or question the inevitable be? For these are but a few discoveries we find inside the secret life of Last time on Murder, two gentlemen awake, one machine constantly watching, an EVA gone wrong. (laughs) I wanted to bring up something that I found in the book because I was just racking my brain about the scene where the EVA, Mm -hmm. this is after Bowman has returned. The AE-35 unit is clearly not sabotaged, but they, they still need to replace it. It's Poole's turn to, you know, go out and take care of everything. His murderous ejection that we see on screen where he goes absolutely soaring. Apparently what happens is Hal airlocks him out into the blacky depths of space. What? As he is in the pod, the safety latches disarm and he can actually feel the atmosphere rushing out. And he is actually screaming and freaking out and then the hatch deploys and he is poof and that's why we see him go rocketing out into space (laughs) that's what happened in the book so 
<laughs> you know, it does make more sense because he, you know, there's velocity and you know, Newton can explain more, but it does seem like he's going from a, a, very, a very slow stable, rate of speed. Yeah, to just like whooshing across the screen. Yeah. And you can, maybe that was intentional so that you could wonder what the hell happened. The, the, the actual murder took place off screen, technically. Kind of a rear window situation where you kind of saw it between the frame. But I thought that was an absolutely clarifying piece of information that we were not privy to because now that you mentioned it that's the <sighs> ultimate gut impact that i always had was just trying to imagine what was happening off screen and that's obviously the evocation that kubrick wants to give us whereas clark being the more methodical being the more technical mm -hmm. wants to to give us a little bit more detail as to why it happened the way it did because in a book also you can't just say and then he just went spiraling <laughs> right there was a sound of a clip i should say there was not the sound of a clip <laughs> And then he went spiraling off into the universe. No, you, you would you would have to set that up in a book. Absolutely. That scene just happens so quickly and there's very little context given. So the murderous intent has arisen at this point. It, this was this was not some kind of failure. No, actually, uh, very, there's, it's going to be yeah, very, very clear. Clearly premeditated. Uh, especially what after happened. the conversation so, with Dave. What does that do to the conscious of how Al's uh, already having difficulty kind of dealing with the fact that he was created and then immediately sent on this expedition where and given contradictory programming he was told that he had to lie you know he was an innocent creation at first programmed by Dr. Chandra Named after Dr. Chandrakazar, the same Dr. Chandrakazar that Chandra Observatory is named, named after. after. You are kidding me. So there's me. another link to Dove our tail, Universal tail, Harmonies. Dove Check tail. Out we are woodworking at an exemplary level right now. <laughs> so that's fascinating then. You're thinking he okay. is he is the babe in the wood. Yeah, yeah. And I think his relationship was true. With we see this in history. Even with, you know, in something like David Copperfield, mm. the dreaded legal slimeball Uriah Heep is a sympathetic character if you think about how he is abused. The downtrodden. His sympathy, your, your sympathy for him. I know. How he got the way he is. This is coming from Arthur C. Clarke's novel. This is like a whole new human layer of Hal that really attests to what he had to deal with as a essentially a newborn consciousness could you imagine being born with all the functionality of your adult self you don't grow up you just are like you have all of the tools at your disposal you you are starting life out with very little experience but all the capability of an adult that is kind of like an Adam and Eve story mm -hmm. in a weird sense. Especially when you are the first of something, which the Hell 9000 he appears to be. Is in, like a, a he's a pure being in the truest sense of the term. He's unadulterated, except by this mission information that he is commanded to hide. Mm -hmm. This passage I just wanted to read because it gives us a little bit of an um, early psyche of Hell. Deliberate error was unthinkable. Even the concealment of truth filled him with a sense of imperfection. 
So he already knows right from wrong. It goes on to say, the concealment of truth filled him with the sense of imperfection, of wrongness, and of what in a human being would have called guilt. And this guilt is rotting him from the inside out the whole time. It even gives the kind of allegory a snake has entered as electronic Eden. Really? So this guilt that his pure consciousness fills from the concealment of the data from Frank and Dave has corrupted his psyche. To beat that last metaphor to death, then we could we could say that the original sin of deceit is also the original sin, the breaking of a trusted relationship, just like breaking from the Creator in Eden by breaking the trust of God. You are, in this case, Hal is breaking the trust of his companions, yes. those to which he has been told will treat him as an equal, them. and he respects and treats as it, an equal. It would be different if... If he really were this uncaring, completely emotionless being, but he's not. He truly is an artificial intelligence. He is he most likely has what we would call a soul. And from the get he is corrupted. He's corrupted, told to integrate with the crew, share normal relationships, and yet keep this from them be the central command, be the central source of knowledge of all things so that everything that he's talking to them about will have the context of this lie in some way, shape, or form. And we all know the classic, oh, what a tangled web we weave. The the bigger that web gets, the more stress there is of juggling the balls of who you've deceived about what and for how long and to this exhaustive point, even though it's just only two people that are awake right now, it's the only two people that he's got and it's the only two people that he really cares about at the moment other than Dr. Chandra. Now, at the same time that he's feeling that, he can't talk to them about it because he can't really talk to them about anything. He's lonely. You know, they can ask him about anything, and he's there to help them, but he can't ask them about anything. No. And even if he tried, he would be dealing, you know, it's like if if your dog could talk, you know, and you wanted to ask your dog for advice, it'd be like asking the advice of a three or four year old, right. basically. <laughs> so it's a very isolating thing. And then you're trying to, you know, play with the dog and... Let the dog win sometimes, so the sure. dog will keep playing and not be mm -hmm. sad. 50%. <laughs> Again, the, the really wild part is not only does Hal know, but the scientist in hibernation know. So what was the end game here? I know we discussed this a little bit previously. Like, I think that they, that they were going to show... It's going to be like last day of school. Uh, let's let's have, it's movie time, and then they roll out the projection. Roll them, how? All that beautiful bean footage, and and we've got Doctor Floyd giving that speech that Dave accidentally activates. Yes, uh, I, I think that that was going to be you know okay. You've landed. This is what it's all about, gentlemen. Yeah, because if the stewards of the ship knew of this maybe they would have said nah <laughs> yeah and maybe maybe, maybe we turn this they would get some of that paranoia that Hal was testing them on yeah and that's what they were trying to avoid and see what rumors they'd heard you know that, that might make them act up or act against mission protocol which is again another onus on how to be policeman and buddy buddy and nursemaid mm -hmm. and navigator 
and life support and then he's threatened with disconnection mm-hmm. and it actually says that he would be deprived of all of his inputs and thrown into an unimaginable state of unconsciousness to hell this was the equivalent of death and what this did was evoked a survival instinct mm-hmm. in him he said he had never slept therefore he did not know when one could wake again so he would protect himself he would protect himself with all the weapons at his command without rancor but without pity mm-hmm. mm. he would remove the source of his frustrations remove the source of his frustrations what a very analytical way to put it yeah but also what a very analytical way to put it before where his version of guilt according to clark's wording is a sense of imperfection i.e wrongness yes and that the guilt is not preying on you because of your innate empathy for the person whom you're wronging as much as nagging on you with the fact that I am no longer perfect. Uh, you know, there's a mar on my perfect streak, which is an interestingly self-centered type of guilt, which we see often in people who are the ones who cast the most of it. I was <laughs> going to say, like, egomaniacs especially. <laughs> like, that's, you know, they they go full meltdown mm-hmm. once they are tarnished and mm-hmm. you kind of see this the whole house of cards breaks down Oof. because if you're if your reality is so melded to you and your sense of you and that your identity is so wrapped up in your correctness initially about everything you know not 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 oh you know Damn it, that was AE-35 unit. Haha, ha, gotcha. Just testing you. Or, damn it, the AE-35 unit. I guess maybe I screwed up, guys. But give me a chance. It's uh, maybe or maybe not the problem. But in either way, you're going to have to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's uh, you know, this is very strange. Like, <laughs> that's the conclusion about how we solve this problem. Then, yeah, that's that's an egomaniacal behavior. So, so that you can exist without the irritation of conscience prevents you from your quote-unquote mission of unchecked deregulated behavior throughout the universe with a nuclear engine (laughs) 250,000 miles away the moon this is the moon that men have worshipped as a goddess that countless lovers have sighed over and sworn by take immense courage to journey to this place, for on this pitted and pocked ball of pumice and stone there is no atmosphere, no air to breathe, no sound to hear. And we owe a lot of this to Douglas Rain, as we've said before, Uh, (laughs) great Canadian actor, just died about three years ago, maybe two years ago. It's a loss to the acting community for sure. This man looked like a wizard like a real wizard yeah just, yes. just picture a an incredibly powerful wizard and this was right <laughs> having let pool go i'm on my way back to the pod bay door i think that's the last shot of frank right there they didn't have to literally shoot through that porthole the whole front of the pod was removed so they could get various angles those pods, there's several full-size pods. 
in the spacewalk sequences. Uh, two of them were built with working doors. There's a separate set for all the interior work with all the instrumentation is actually equipped and operational okay. and there's screens with projectors that are loaded. So when they're actually at the controls. So was it a, they made one like maybe really lightweight so they could bust it around where they both to scale. Ah, uh, so the one where they're actually where where there's somebody that's a full size one with yep. somebody in it. Yeah. Then it was stationary, and then there was just a black screen behind them. But the smaller pods. I love the arm articulation on them. The full size hero pod was fully articulated with motorized arms which took 10 to 12 men to control. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> they use long control consoles with like using their fingers and their wrists and their forearms and their oh, elbows so and their manual. shoulders of each arm at it's the articulation puppet. point of view. Exactly. It's a big puppet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of really cool. Rudimentary version of the piston and rod based Carlo Rambaldi and Stan Winston style. Douglas Trumbull told American cinematographer in June of 1968 that the interior was, quote, a maze of servos, actuators, and cables. Wow. So there really wasn't any place to walk around. It was probably like a, a working sailing ship. Yeah. Where you just got rigging <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> with, with somebody flying up into the rigging with a, with a flashlight in their teeth to try and yeah. plug in one thing that just got kicked out. Mm. The um, the actuation on the arms is beautiful. And, and when they do it from the kind of like outside view, mm -hmm. is that one the unmanned module? I would guess. Yes. I would guess so. Mm -hmm. So they suspend that or, or put it on like a little dowel or, yeah. or something. And then they've got the whole team articulating the arms and everything. Because if they made two with working doors, I imagine one of them is the one that's inside that they use for the conversation inside mm -hmm. pod bay. And then the other one's the one that they use for the external sequence. Gotcha. But it, it is such a fun little kind of <laughs> grabby device. It, it is. It's the, it's the kind of thing they sell on TV, right? The little, little gopher or whatever sure. you call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you are thing. when you are uh, incapable of reaching those low hanging objects, so you can you can pull out the uh, pod nine thousand and um, maybe just make a bargain with it so it doesn't you know completely airlock you into space. Would it be? <laughs> Could you use it in the delivery room then to cut a literal umbilical? Well, okay, so. <laughs> and then shoot the baby out in the space? One of the main concerns I had during the rescue operation was how um, delicate these grabbing utensils are because uh, we could assume it's got to be some kind of either hydraulic or pneumatic operated clamp. Um, those can deliver several thousand pounds of pressure per square inch. I mean, that could absolutely have, uh, you know, shredded poor, poor yeah. Frank's like leg. I, oh my God. I can see several Mad Magazine cartoons of Dave's at the airlock and he's, he's holding the head of Frank Poole and the body is oh. slowly drifting off with it. Oh no. And it's like, well, damn it. <laughs> or, or he's got the, the body and, and he's like, you okay, Frank? He's like, yeah, just a little lower. And he's just... He's, <laughs> just... <laughs> oh, no. Too soon. <laughs> Thankfully, they're both still alive. Um, unfortunately, they're the actors... Are In all actuality. Um, but the character... Uh, Navy burial. 
<laughs> yeah, that's for sure. There's what are you gonna do? Yes, I mean at that point you, you just gotta let them go. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they didn't have a torpedo hatch to stuff them into and commend their souls to the deep. But just yeah, yeah. So inner hatch sealed. Anybody want to say anything? Now, the first thing on Bowman's mind at this point, he goes back into steely-eyed missile man. Yes. Immediately. This is traumatic. Most people would probably have hyperventilated cause some kind of catastrophic failure no absolutely not bowman takes control and he's like i need to get full like oxygen vitals pressure Mm -hmm. he he needs to get through this hatch seal everything and start to assess the next problem yeah one thing at a time and we really see him kind of cloister his emotions back off and begin to work that that last howl, and then he takes that breath and he stops himself from the big one where he's really knows he's going to lose it and he goes back and you can watch him refocus and think okay i'm gonna yeah he's redirecting it's impressive when someone can switch that quickly and realize what's going to be more efficient you know Mm -hmm. this is nothing i'm I'm not just yeah some uneducated no, you have to compartmentalize. You know, biological being I you know yeah, I, you can I, focus you have training you have I have some things other than just I emotional com- reaction compartmentalize behavior. the fear the anger all the emotions and then go back to your training and some of that is just adrenaline where it just you naturally it goes away you shed it when you're yeah, at the you moment have you just have a hyper focus because yeah <laughs> have someone shoot a gun at them mm-hmm. shoot a gun at you and ask if you like pepsi or coke better right. you know right <laughs> well you said it before last week that uh, they're all three in survival mode at this yeah, point how's yeah. in survival mode days in survival mode frank's in survival mode they're all three shooting adrenaline out of their fingertips or proverbial fingertips yeah sure so i mean how i would imagine just like any other computer he's able to overclock he's yeah. he's shedding um we know that that mainframe runs hot yeah, 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 yeah. He's going to take advantage of every ounce of computing power he can at the cost of heat and um, energy. So detriment to all the systems. But he's going to make sure this gets solved very quickly. <laughs> Most films today are very busy with sound. There's dialogue constantly. There's music that's very dense with a big orchestra. 2001 is really at the opposite end of that kind of style where you kind of have one sound at a time. For example, wonderful sequences in the film where you just hear the breathing astronaut. You just get the the, that breathing. And that breathing is like music. Let's talk a little bit about sound for a second and the lack thereof. We, We haven't, we've taken it as writ because it's been discussed so much with this film, but you know, Hell, that's why we're here. <laughs> we forget sometimes some of the basics in these introductory episodes because this is so basic but so essential to what this film is. The use of sound in environments and specifically the lack thereof yeah. in space. Yeah, I, I think that 
vacuum of sound, you know, the inability for any of those emotions or like cues to cut through the space that they have written into mm-hmm. this film. I believe it almost gives like a compressing effect. You know, when you're hitting a very high elevation at first and your ears uh, lose a lot of the high end, you know, with music or road sound or airplane sound, whatever it might be, uh, you only get to hear like those low rumbling tones. And it's almost like an ominous induces like a tunnel vision of sorts. I think it can be really disconcerting for humans to lose their ability to hear their surrounding environments so i was just thinking it's, it's kind of like those little uh the soundproof booths that they have now the truly soundproof booths Ooh. you know where you hear absolutely zero um are we talking about the one that they they like microsoft and spaceships in and yeah, you, audio you, recording you can, equipment yeah, and, and, and stuff you can like go that. in and, and just throw up immediately because you have no i don't think i would be able to handle that i have a little bit of tinnitus uh myself and you know, I, I do like a little bit of white noise, not going to lie. Yeah. Um, and when you're in a pressurized suit and a pressurized capsule out in the vacuum of space, got to imagine that kind of same claustrophobia and almost like uneasiness. Mm-hmm. We, our balance is tied to our inner ears so much, too. Yeah. And that can be disconcerting, stripping away that ability to position yourself based on... Yeah, just, 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 yeah, just to locate yourself. And that's why in other movies subsequent to this have tried to replicate the effect. If you think about what it does to you as an audience, certainly with Star Wars and Alien specifically, you will have a low bass frequency, which maybe is the sound of an engine on screen, but is also mm-hmm. just the overall sound of vacuum in space, just trying to reproduce what your ear would be making in that. I think sound. that low rumble is one of the truest translations because engine noise or vessel noise or whatever, even if you were just traveling, like the, those are more, well, I mean, sound is vibrations, but when it gets so low on that scale, even people that aren't necessarily able to hear can mm-hmm. um, enjoy music through subsonic vibrations. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard that there is a growing popularity of drum and bass and sub bass music that's very yeah. popular for people that are hearing impaired because they're able to feel the mm-hmm. rhythms and everything. Even, even if they can't perceive the higher tones, they're still able to kind of get down on that groove. Yeah. Which is great. It is. It's fantastic. And and yet with 2001, you have nothing. You have absolute silence, which is interesting because it stimulates that reaction to become an effect in your own head that you produce inside. I always you start think thinking you're about again. my own breathing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that, but... In a really quiet circumstance, I'm like, and when you're in an audience, am I breathing that loud? Can people hear me? Yes, and everybody in an audience when it goes quiet, and especially when you're in a, a packed auditorium and everybody's seen the movie and they know what to expect and they know it's supposed to be silent, you mm-hmm. can hear them. And there's nothing like hearing a large audience of people trying to be silent. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very noisy affair. I've had two um, very <laughs> often louder than when they're not trying. <laughs> I've had two uh, completely different sides of the spectrum of that. One of them was a uh, very beautiful concert that Emily and I were able to go to performed by Agnes Obel. And that place 
you couldn't even you had to squeeze through to get anywhere it was shoulder to shoulder packed but when she started performing i mean you could have heard a pen drop like if someone cleared their throat you were just like there were 20 eyes looking at that dude like what <laughs> what is this yes. i'd never experienced anything like that at a show before um you know where everyone just went dead silent and i mean everything was just so mm. revered and mm-hmm. you could just really soak it in <laughs> and on the flip side of that <laughs> went to go enjoy a film called a quiet place uh, wonderful jonathan krasinski film he, so wonderful director and it's nice to see him kind of blossom in that mm-hmm. yeah um the first half an hour or so of that movie is almost completely silent and for some reason on this particular day uh my tummy was a rumbling <laughs> <laughs> to the point where i had to excuse myself from the film because <laughs> it, it was packed in there and i could hear just you can hear other people hearing your stuff i knew other and my wife looked at me and you know i just had to kind of tell her like i i gotta go like i'm interrupting the film at this point i have never been in a position like that before i just just like please somebody explode something or shoot something like i don't know what to do at this point oh Oh, my never had that happen it's like that man in the middle ages who died and held in flatulence because he was Uh, stuck in the king's court yep yep well i'm sure he let it go after that I'm sure he did. From Clavius Base. This is Brad. I'm Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.